I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Information in the form of energy streams in. is Mikhail Friedman. He's a naturopathic medical doctor. About 10 years ago, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and has been riding a roller coaster of ups and downs with it ever since. And his new book is There's No Pill for This, which documents his ordeals 
and experiences while learning to navigate the uncertain world of multiple sclerosis, which at this time has no cure, though there are various ways of improving one's conditions and one's quality of life with it. So, Mikhail, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Hey, thank you. So, all that I've known leading up to this book was that multiple sclerosis it was a disease that was characterized by a degeneration of the myelin sheath of the nerve pathways. But the symptoms are quite varied, and they can be extremely debilitating. A lot of people with MS end up in wheelchairs. And could you talk about multiple sclerosis and the conditions, the symptoms, and how challenging it can be from diagnosis to living with it and understanding what's happening when you have it, particularly if you haven't yet been diagnosed, because you had some symptoms of it prior to your diagnosis. And I just recently had an intense little health crisis in which I went through some debilitating pain and the uncertainty the very disturbing uncertainty of not knowing what was going on. And because it was peaking in the middle of the night, I went online and was Googling, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. Dr. Google. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, that was really disturbing. I mean, I was like on the verge of catastrophizing the whole thing as all these different potential diagnoses were coming up. So talk about your experience with it and talk about multiple sclerosis and all those dynamics going into it. Sure. You know, actually, when you mentioned about Googling, I remember uh, I was a speaker at a conference and one of the medical doctors was speaking how every contacting Dr. Google has been a big curse for the medical industry because every ends up catastrophizing whatever symptoms they have. <laughs> it's a common thing. And then they're like, what about this? What about that? So uh, anyways, for myself, I got diagnosed. By now, it's probably, since I wrote the book and everything, it was probably about 12 years ago. I was around my 40th birthday, and I'm 52 now. So I was driving with my wife up North Street, and, you know, in the fall, beautiful scenery and trees and the leaves and all that. And, and my wife asked me a really good question. Why was I driving on the wrong side of the road? And I answered, I was like, I don't know. I was like, I don't know why I drive a guy on the wrong side of the road. She thought I was doing it to be funny or playing a prank or something like that, you know, because I'm kind of a joker. But um, I said, I'm really not joking. I just don't know why I'm driving on the wrong side. And I asked her which side is the right side to drive on, and she showed me. And I'm like, okay, I'll go there. And then I was fine. But then later she's like, you know, I really think you should ask a doctor why you're driving on the wrong side of the road. And I'm like, ah, well, you know, I'm a doctor myself, and it's just like I was just spaced out or thinking about other things maybe, but she really encouraged me to see someone, and then I postponed it, you know, kind of like some of my typical patients' husbands who didn't want to go to the doctor for some reason, even though I am a doctor, and I, you know, I just thought like, well, I don't think, you know, I waffled about it, but then I started bending my neck, and then I started having like electric shocks down my spine and down my neck and all the way to my foot. And I was like, that's weird. I was like, I don't even understand how that could happen. How could you bend your neck and you feel electric shocks in your foot? So I made an appointment with a local neurologist, and the local neurologist did a physical exam, and it was a pretty normal physical exam, except bending my neck. 
And the neurologist said, well, you're probably just anxious or something. I'm like, I'm not really that anxious. And then he said, well, you're too young to have any cognitive problems, you know, and, and if you had any neurological things, those things happen much later than the other symptoms. So I don't think you were just anxious about what side of the road to drive on. And But she said, he said, well, let's just do a test just in case and let's do an MRI, and I don't think we'll find anything. But he did, and then he found a lot of lesions. And lesions are basically scars in the myelin sheath. And he called me up and said, well, I just want to warn you psychologically first before you come to the appointment. He did test positive for what looks like multiple sclerosis. So I went to his office, and then he referred me to a specialist, an MS neurologist who only treats MS. And incidentally, he died a few weeks later. And then I saw this other neurologist who was an MS neurologist who actually also died like a few months after I saw him too. And then it was just like an interesting thing about my third neurologist was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my MS neurologist, he's practiced for 40 years, he said that he'd never seen anyone with this amount of demyelination upon diagnosis. He said, this is not what happened the last month, the last six months. It's probably for decades you've been having this. And I'm like, I've been complaining about symptoms for decades and no one really believed me, you know, and he actually he said, I, I can't even count the amount of lesions you have in the spine. It looks like a galaxy of lesions. So I asked him, you know, what my prognosis was, and he, he was very honest and frank. He was like, you'll get worse. And I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I have a doctorate. I know that most neurological diseases have the word progressive and the word in chronic, and, but you know, I didn't want to think that was me, you know. So I was like, that's not going to be me. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to do everything possible and take naturopathic medicine. And I started doing that. And, you know, a week after I came back from seeing the MS doctor, I also got a thing in the mail for um, applying for disability. And I I was like, disability? I mean, I just got diagnosed. And I guess I had enough lesions enough that the neurologist thought it was appropriate for me at least to know about disability and how to apply for it. And but I put it in the mail. I was like, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to be that person. And I was like, I kind of had this practically superstitious, idea that, you know, if you think you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick, and because everybody says this disease progresses, it progresses, and I just got to, you know, not think that and do everything I can to be better. So then I, as a naturopathic doctor, I had treated a lot of people with autoimmune diseases, and I never treated people with neurological diseases, but I had experience with a lot of thyroid, autoimmune thyroid disease with some success, especially hyperthyroidism, in reversing the autoimmune aspect. So I did a lot of the basic things we learned as a naturopathic physician. And also there was a neurologist, Dr. Swank, in Oregon Health Science University who came up with a diet about a low-saturated fat diet. And so, you know, I went on a, all the different things one could do. I went on a low-saturated fat diet. I started taking high doses of vitamin D3. And, and then I also started doing Ayurvedic panchakarma treatments. I did acupuncture every week. I was like, I'm just going to do it all. And then about eight months later, I had an appointment with my neurologist. And, I, you know, in my head, I'm like, I'm going to be that person who just came back and proved the doctor wrong. And unfortunately, I had another attack, which is what MS does is you have a series of attacks. And the attacks are basically your white blood cells and your immune system is attacking your nervous system. So basically, your immune system is supposed to fight against bacteria and 
colds and flus and COVID, et cetera. But my immune system was attacking my brain and my spinal cord. And that's what happens during the attack. And the attack, it's also known as an exacerbation. And you get more symptoms and you get some more damage somewhere in your spinal cord or your brain. And then you get new symptoms. And it's kind of like opening Pandora's box. You don't really know what's going to come out until the attack is over. And it's like a new surprise. You know, it's like opening your hand in a, in a goodie bag for a party and seeing what you get. I mean, a little kid, except they're like bad presents, you know. And so suddenly, within like two weeks, I started feeling really tired and I started feeling really confused. And I also had a hard time tying my shoes and I, I couldn't even put my hand under water because it hurt so much and I couldn't swim because of the pain of my hands touching water and it was hard to take a shower because the water hurt the skin so much and then I couldn't play the piano and I couldn't play guitar because my fingers didn't work that well. Some fingers started pointing out, poking out in different ra- ways which are, looked kind of odd like I was in a Halloween costume or something. And then I started getting confused and then I, I there was a moment where I was like, looking at my son and I was like trying to really remember if he was my son or my godson and who the mother was and who the father was and I'm like and he was four years old and I figured out right away pretty soon within a few minutes but then it broke my heart I was like wow I didn't even recognize my son for a few minutes and then the symptoms started subsiding and then I was invited to do a radio show about thyroid disease and I didn't really understand that MS caused so many cognitive things at that time. And the doctor was asking me all these questions about endocrinology, and <laughs> I did a terrible job because I just couldn't keep up with the conversation, and I didn't remember all the things I learned as a doctor, and I was like, wow, this is scary. And then um, I was really humbled because I was like, oh, I have all the tools. I have all the tools as a naturopathic doctor, and I'll be okay. But I didn't, and I was wrong. And then in the end, I started tried doing other naturopathic protocols and a variety of different things. And I think that they've helped me for sure. And, and and also, honestly, there was a point after about five or ten years where I saw my third neurologist, who didn't die, and she noticed that I was doing really well, and my MRIs had shown that I haven't gotten any new lesions. And most people statistically get like 10 or 15 new scars a year with drug therapy or without drug therapy at least. And she asked me what I was doing because she said, you know, you're remarkable right now. You're doing quite well and you're much more stable than I thought you'd be. And when you got that last attack on your spinal cord or was around the cervical neck, and she said if it grew more than what it did in those two weeks, you'd be a quadriplegic. So it's very, very serious. Like where you got the demyelination was a pretty serious place, so you got to be careful. And But she was pleased to see how well I was doing, and I took a drug too. And So I kind of fine-tuned my protocols and... Yeah, I'm doing well in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm probably have had MS now since my 20s, so over 30 years, and I went cross-country skiing yesterday. I can do most things most days, but it still can be really hard. And so anyways, that's kind of my story of how I, overall I started. So you're a naturopathic doctor. What distinguishes a naturopathic doctor or naturopathic medicine from typical Western medicine that most people are familiar with, and how does it affect the way you approach MS? So naturopathic medicine is a field of medicine where you have to study 
at a medical school to be licensed as a naturopathic physician. You have to go to a four-year medical school. There's like six of them in the United States and one in Canada, or two in Canada currently. And it's about the same amount of hours as being a family doctor in terms of amount of classroom hours. And you do have to learn conventional medicine. You have to learn like pharmaceuticals, and you can prescribe pharmaceuticals. And, but you also learn nutrition and herbs and all these other things. And you look at what's called the vital force, and it kind of has like this philosophy that the body can heal if you help the terrain of health. So if you really like, kind of like in the way we garden, if you want to really look at the terrain, you want to make sure that there's enough water, enough nutrients and sun and shade to make your plants thrive and make sure that the ecosystem is healthy, not to have a lot of bugs. It can have a really healthy and productive vegetable garden. And in the same way in the human organism that we believe that the body can heal and you want to support the body as much as possible. And you want to get rid of all the hindrances to health. So those could be heavy metals and toxicity. You want to make sure that you want to get rid of like things which hinder health. So that would be junk food. It could be pesticides in the food. It could be not sleeping enough. It could be not exercising enough. So you're trying to flip all those things and eat well, eat organic foods, exercise, make sure you sleep enough and lifestyle for your not stressed out and all those things. And then, of course, you want to do all the things which help and support the different body systems. So if you want to be looking at nutritional supplements, you'll be looking at herbal medicine. You also look at hormones, off-label uses of hormones as well if needed. Um, You look at anything which is to help support the body to make sure you want to look at the gut flora. There's so many things you look at trying to make sure that someone's healthy and well. And when you need antibiotics or you need a drug, you also recommend that as well. So it's not anti-regular medicine. It's more like you're integrating two different systems. And sometimes one system can be more productive than the other, and sometimes they both work together really well. So you just do the best you can. And Western medicine really doesn't look much at nutrition, doesn't think about lifestyle. And also naturopathic medicine is traditionally much more of a traditional approach to medicine, which regular medicine, even 30 years ago, like the family doctor, you have a relationship with your patient. Modern medicine right now is is kind of succumbed to capitalism and corporate medicine where all these small clinics are owned by, get bought out by universities, which or corporations in a sense. And they're looking at the bottom line and they're trying to make sure that they're, one thing they're doing maybe unintentionally is they're taking out the relationship out of the doctor and the patient as a healing thing in itself and replacing it with just quick visits and review of lab tests. And and that's not an unfortunate thing. Sounds like an industrialized model of medicine. Yeah, it's worth turning into. And I don't think physicians even want that necessarily at all. But it's what, you know, where the physicians aren't really their own bosses anymore. Yeah, a few months ago I interviewed a medical doctor and she talked about how she felt out of control of her own practice, that she actually went to a doctor who specialized in something that her daughter needed, and she was so impressed and blown away that this guy spent a full hour with her daughter, and she was like, why can't I do that with my patients? Yeah. And she was lamenting that she couldn't. She actually 
could not do it. She had all these constraints on her practice that were beyond her control. Not all places are like that because I know, like, for example, I'm a patient at Brigham Women's Hospital, and the neurologist there spent an hour with me or an hour and 15 minutes. I was really surprised, and, and they have a different system. So getting back to your naturopathic approach, it sounds like you, you look at healing and health conditions from a much more holistic approach. You bring in a lot of other elements into the picture to help you approach disease. I'd love for you to talk about what causes, like you described MS as, in your case in particular, as your immune system attacking your brain and your spinal cord. Is that what happens to all people with MS or are different parts of the nervous system being attacked in different circumstances? And what causes the body, one's own immune system, to attack the brain and the spinal cord and the nervous system? I think most people basically understand that the immune system is looking for foreign or threatening elements in the body to defend itself. How does it see these particular things as enemies? That's a good question. I'm just pausing because I'm trying to figure out how to answer that intelligently. So like, taking like a step back from multiple sclerosis and looking at, in general, the world and illnesses, illnesses change and different illnesses affect different people throughout the times differently. And my parents' generation had to deal with much more childhood diseases, diphtheria and tetanus, and they had a lot more other types of you know, infectious diseases. And there were less, relatively less autoimmune diseases the generation before. And a lot of things have changed in the last 50 years, 100 years. The last 50 years, for example, sperm count has gone down 50% in the male, very significant, and body temperature is going down. Uh, people used to be 98.6, but now 98.6 temperature is not what's considered normal anymore. So our markers of health in some ways of what was considered normal is different now than it used to be. And all autoimmune diseases, not go over into the definition of autoimmune in a second, has gone up significantly in the last 10 years, 20, and over 20 years, 30 years, on all these different studies have shown that across the world, autoimmune disease has gone up sky high. Some autoimmune diseases, the prevalence has gone up by 3% every year, 5%, whether it's celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, all the typical autoimmune diseases have gone up significantly. And it's not only that we know how to test for it, it's not just that. The prevalence is going up, so the percent per population is getting it significantly higher. And that's across the board. So, you know, why is that happening is a good question. And I would say in point to toxicity, the amount of chemicals we eat in a day, the amount of pesticides we're eating, the amount of all the flame retardants we're breathing in, the fumes from paints in our house, you know, the acetone, the hexane, we're, we're exposed to so many solvents and residues in everything we eat. I mean, even people are trying to get like, you know, cheap oil, like canola oil, you know, it's made with these, it's extracted with all these different solvents. So you're eating these solvents unless it's cold pressed like olive oil. A lot of these solvents are everywhere. People are getting decaf coffee extracted with ethyl acetate. There's so many different things that we're 
eating that we used to not ingest, and I think that it makes it more challenging for the immune system to figure out what's a threat versus what's not a threat. And the whole purpose of the immune system is to really focus on outside threats, which naturally exist, such as bacteria and viruses. But now they're also having to deal with all these chemicals in our environment. Just for example, puberty has gone down significantly so that puberty starts at a much younger age than it used to. And then there was a study in Puerto Rico where the average girl was getting puberty like at age 12. And they attributed that to the type of plastic bottles that Coca-Cola was using, which weren't allowed in the United States. There are so many different things we're exposed to, the phthalates, the pesticide residues, which all are affecting our hormone system, our endocrine system, and it affects the immune system and the immune response. So I think that's one factor. Also, our diet has changed in terms of not only toxicity, but we're eating a lot more processed foods. So we're finding now that, you know, one of the organs in the body, which people didn't talk about before, was the microbiome. And the gut has a huge flora of bacteria and funguses, which actually act as an organ in itself. It produces more dopamine and serotonin than the brain does. And it only produces these neurotransmitters only in healthy levels when the microbiome is flourishing in a healthy way. But our microbiome, which is basically our gut flora, is dramatically changed by the amount of processed sugars we're eating and the decreased amounts of whole unprocessed foods and also antibiotics, acid blockers, all these things have changed the gut flora tremendously. So I think the microbiome has shown to be an impact. And they actually did a, um, I, I'm not personally endorsing animal studies, but they're, I'm going to mention them because they have shown some interesting things here. So when uh, medical research looks at testing the model of the science of multiple sclerosis, they do a study on mice and they induce this similar, and it's not multiple sclerosis, but they induce some neurological demyelination in the mice. And they've noticed that they've been able to actually induce it in the mice by changing the gut flora, the bacteria of the mice, and stop it by changing the gut flora in the mice. So the gut flora in animal studies have actually shown to trigger demyelination event, which is basically multiple sclerosis. So gut flora definitely looks like it can be an impact, but there's also viruses have shown to confuse and end up trying to fight the virus, but then they end up fighting other tissues in the body, which at the same time by accident, and like Epstein-Barr has been associated with certain like other autoimmune diseases and diabetes type 1, for example. So the immune system can get triggered to what's called an autoimmune disease where the body attacks itself by toxins, by viruses, by bacteria. They're found that people with Hashimoto's thyroid autoimmune disease can be triggered by parvovirus. And there's a thing called molecular mimicry where the virus mimics a similar kind of tissue in the body, whether it's the joint for rheumatoid arthritis or whether it's the nervous system and multiple sclerosis. And then we have to also look back. We're not sure exactly why it can cause autoimmune disease gets caused. But um, one factor that they're also finding is vitamin D deficiency. Multiple sclerosis is primarily found in the northern hemisphere far away from the sun. And places near the equator, there's virtually none. So vitamin D deficiency can help look like it can trigger an attack and create multiple sclerosis itself. Unfortunately, they found that if someone is in northern latitude like Vermont, so like, oh, okay, well, it looks like 
people don't get it in the equator doesn't mean that someone after they get it can go to the equator and be fine. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. So in the United States, they find that basically it's the vitamin D levels getting to like age nine or something like that, which can really impact whether you develop multiple sclerosis or other autoimmune diseases in the future. So, for example, there's much less multiple sclerosis per capita in Texas if you're born in Texas. And if you're born in Vermont, it's a much higher rate because you're at much less sun exposure. But if you move from Vermont to Texas as an adult, it doesn't seem like it impacts the prognosis that much. So different autoimmune diseases cause attacks different parts of the body, and multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disorder, although there might be some other factors, which were, you know, whether it's inflammation or other parts which we're learning about. They haven't identified a specific antibody, and you can't do a blood test to see do you have an antibody against your brain or your spinal cord in general. So rich is like rheumatoid arthritis, you can find you can do a panel and find blood tests. You can see rheumatoid factors and lupus. You can do a test for ANA antibodies, but there isn't for multiple sclerosis, which opens the doors or other things which can cause it. And it's still in speculation. We're not sure, but that definitely is known to be an autoimmune disease. And it's an autoimmune disease for everybody of all the types of multiple sclerosis. And then it really attacks the myelin sheath, which is a fat and a protein. And the body somehow thinks this myelin sheath is foreign to the body and attacks it so then it fights itself so it's you know rheumatoid arthritis affects those joints and ms affects the central nervous system and wherever there's myelin sheath it's open game to get attacked so myelin sheath is on nerves and nerves are throughout basically primarily through the spinal cord and primarily through the brain and where the myelin sheath gets destroyed is kind of random it's it's like a hurricane so a hurricane goes and different parts of the body and then they don't think they understand why, but it you know, can attack this part of the brain or this part of the spinal cord. And once it does that, you get symptoms based on where the lesion is. You can have lesions in any part. And it's, it's kind of like real estate. It's people, it's real estate agents, it's location, location, location. Same with MS, it's location, location, location. Where you're going to get a problem is based where you get the attack. And the attack might be, you know, if it's near the lumbar spine, you might have bladder problems and need to get catheterized regularly. And if it's in a certain part of the brain, you might have a part of the brain where it affects like your ability to censor thoughts. And then you can say crazy things in public because you don't understand that you need to censor thoughts. You can have a different part of the brain and it affects your breathing. Or um, you can affect your cerebral cortex and it affects executive function. And then you have a hard time figuring how to make decisions and decide on things. So it can be anywhere. So about the myelin sheath, it's like an insulator for the nerve pathways. And it seems like when there's a degeneration of the myelin sheath, then the nerve impulses that travel down the nerve, something happens as a result of the breakdown of the insulation. So are those nerve impulses then somehow having an effect outside of of the nerve pathway? So yeah, it's really like when you look at an electric wire, you see like the plastic around it. That plastic around it is kind of like the myelin sheath around the nerve. It needs to be sealed to fully work. So the signal, if the myelin sheath isn't around the nerve, the signal doesn't fully go through or it gets impaired. If it's fully stopped somewhere, then sometimes the signal can't work at all and then you can't move your legs or you can't move your arms. 
or you can't have a certain type of thought. It's pretty wild. So, you know, everything we do, everything we think of, all our consciousness is all related to the signals coming through our nerves. And that's how we relate to the world. And that's how we see the world. So even just philosophizing about, you know, the meaning of the world and the meaning of life, it all uses nerves and it all uses a myelin sheath. So like my degree before medicine was philosophy and religion. And consciousness is something which really fascinated me. And the ability to ponder about anything really needs a signal in your brain to think about stuff. So if you don't have that signal, you can't have you can't fully have those thoughts either. It's interesting, you know, which kind of made me think about our consciousness. What is our consciousness? And for me, like my view of the world is changed by my limits of the signals coming through the nerves. And so, if a myelin sheath area is fully demyelinated, the signal can be maybe ten percent or twenty percent. Or if it's like just a little demyelinated, maybe it's you know five percent demyelinated in a certain section. So it might be just sometimes. For example, I can ski. I just skied yesterday, cross-country skied for an hour. I was fine. I went up hills, down hills. I was pretty rigorous. But sometimes if my legs are tired at the end of the day, my legs collapse. Not often, but it can. And that's because my signal from the cervical spine is impacted by the signal all the way to my legs. But it's not enough that it's impaired that much that I can't walk. So I can walk fine. 99% of the time, I can ski. But the nerves going to the signal to my lungs are impacted, so my breathing sometimes is harder to, my diaphragm feels more work to push my diaphragm, so that part of my body has been impacted, so I do take oxygen in the morning to help with that. So as you were talking, I thought of stress, because you didn't mention stress earlier, and stress is becoming much more well-known as a powerful, debilitating factor upon our immune system and our overall well-being. I would imagine that stress must also have a profound effect on MS. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't think there's been any studies to show that MS is caused by stress. But once someone has MS, it is a stressful illness itself, and life can be stressful. And interestingly, out of all the illnesses out there, multiple sclerosis supposedly has the highest suicide rate out of all chronic diseases. So it is a very emotionally taxing thing for a lot of, you know, at least more, at least half the people out there who have it. The studies have, have been a little bit mixed about whether stress can actually cause an attack. Um, some studies have shown it, and some studies have shown that it doesn't cause an attack. And when someone has MS and they're having a bad time, it's not necessarily because they're stressed. And it's easy to blame the patient. Oh, well, you know, did he have a hard week or hard month? And that's why you have symptoms. There's so many factors which we don't even understand. But there are some studies that show that, that when someone's really stressed, it can exacerbate your symptoms from MS. I don't think there's evidence that it can cause like a new demyelination somewhere. But I would say it's a hindrance to wellness as it is for everything. So, you know, anxiety and stress certainly can exacerbate the symptoms and decrease your quality of life with MS. I mean, there, there are some studies that, which have shown that maybe a lot of stress can actually cause an MS attack, but it's not clear that it can. But it definitely has shown to exacerbate symptoms and worsening of symptoms if someone's really stressed. I think one thing which is important is with neurological illnesses is 
how do you feel whole when part of your identity is taken away? And that can cause a lot of stress. So, you know, how can you accept what you have and manage your expectations is very important. And I think that's part of how you can stay well with MS is working with that as well. And then also working with your life to decrease the amount of stress you have and, you know, maximize your wellness. And parts of maximizing wellness is maybe saying no to things which drain your energy. And that could be certain relationships or certain things which you do which are not good, you know. Like personally, and I think there's a lot of studies even to back this up, I think with social media and like a lot of this stuff can be really bad for the distractions. Like I think being on your phone too much is a form of stress, getting distracted all the time. You know, stress also increases the uh, cortisol, which also impacts how someone feels. So if you let, it can go into fight or flight response and you feel a lot of stress, then you know, that can decrease the immune system as well. So I totally agree. You know, I think stress, managing stress and anxiety is very important. So considering how stressful MS can be, particularly when it's flaring up and it's in our face, how do you go about dealing with that and cultivating more of a sense of wholeness and well-being in the face of those challenges as they flare up in your face? I just want to talk about, before I answer that, that a flare-up is like is when you're having an attack, and then, and then after that, symptoms can subside, and that's what you call a remission. And during the, so there's different types of MS. Um, there's a type of MS which is primary progressive, which basically you get it and you just continuously get worse, and you just you never have a moment of relief. And then there's relapsing remission, which I think is about 80% of patients that get that in the beginning, and you get an attack, you feel terrible, and the inflammation wears down after the attack, and then the symptoms subside. And some of those symptoms go away, and some of those symptoms stay forever. And then there's something called secondary progressive, which after most patients eventually go from relapsing remitting to progressive, where it just gradually gets worse, but they don't have any very clear attacks anymore, where it's just like a general slow, gradual progression. But the great thing about relapsing remission is that you do go in remissions and you feel fairly normal during the remissions, but the word remission sounds a lot nicer than it is because remission means you're not having active new demyelination, active new disease, but whatever damage was to that part of the body has been done and that part of the body is going to be impacted. And if it's severe enough, even after the inflammation goes down after two, three weeks, it can be there forever. So you can be in remission and be in a wheelchair, for example. But when you're getting an attack, it's it's hard. And you don't know what's going to happen the next, you know, what are you going to wake up with? So I've had two really bad attacks in my life. And one was like three years ago when I was like, I was the day before I was like intertubing with my family and, and Warren. And it was, it was fine. It was great. And I felt fine. And we had a picnic and it was great. And then... The next morning, I woke up, and I was stiff, and I was like, ah, I'm feeling stiff. And I think one thing which has really helped me is, like, keep going. <laughs> Just keep going. Like, you know, I think it's important to give yourself time to do what you need to do with MS, but it's important not to revolve your whole life around MS as much as possible. So, like, you need to rest. You need to take care of yourself, but... You don't want to have a life where you just rest and take care of yourself or you get depressed. You have to keep going. So I, I was like, I'm just going to push myself and go to work. And So I went to work, and 
I worked just a mile away from my house, and but I drove down, and then and then I was sitting in a chair, and I'm like, oh wow, it's just like <laughs> it's really hard to it's like painful to sit down, and then I was like, I stood up, and I was like, oh, it's kind of painful to stand up. My back feels like maybe it's a muscle spasm or something like that, and then two hours later, I was like, oh, this is I can't stand or sit. I'm like, I need to go home. So, but then I, I got on my chair and I, I barely could walk. And so some of my staff helped me walk me out to the car, and they're telling me, do you mean to drive the car? And I'm like, nah, I can drive the car, and it's only a mile away, and they helped me go in the car. And by the time I was in the car, I was like, oh, this is hard. Like, <laughs> my feet are, it's hard to move my feet. And But I drove, and I was driving towards my house, and I was like, you know, this is getting so bad. Like, I shouldn't go to my house. I should go to the hospital. And I went to the hospital, and when the neurologist saw me, and they thought I had something called a transverse myelitis, which means like it's inflammation around the spinal cord, and it happens really quickly. And it's like MS, or it is MS, or it can be MS, but it happens really quickly instead of like an attack normally in MS. It might be a few weeks to develop a symptom, but this is like three hours, and I couldn't walk. And so I walked out of the car to the hospital, but once I entered with sliding doors to go into the hospital, I couldn't walk to the desk where you register so they saw that I couldn't walk and they got me a uh, wheelchair and then they put me in the hospital they gave me salumedrol IV prednisone and then I did it for four or five days and you know the night after I went home and it was hard to move so I was on the floor at my house with my family and I literally had to crawl through the house with help like I would like take my arms and like push against the wall or something try to sliver myself through the house and I couldn't stand up to the bathroom so that needed a jar and just kind of be on the floor and my family helped me and and when you have this you're like is this forever you don't know and then like two three days later I lost my voice and I couldn't talk and I was like oh wow like I was turning mute I couldn't talk at all or I could barely whisper then I started getting heart symptoms and my heart would go high and then my blood pressure would spike up and spike back down and it was tough that was that was one of my hardest MS attacks and so you know how do you manage it well first of all I'm going to say it's it's hard and I'm not I'm not going to lie and pretend I'm like the poster I don't want to be the poster representation of like just being fine with whatever happened because I wasn't but I I didn't get to, I didn't get depressed. I was really just focusing like what can I do to do better. And I was humbled by all the things I had to do to get better. But I was just like okay, I'm doing it. So I'm doing speech lessons now. I'm learning how to say vowels while my kids are already in kindergarten writing and learning. While my myelin sheath is getting destroyed, while their myelin sheath is getting built up, while they're learning how to read and write. I'm like doing a year of speech therapy. But I was like okay, that's what I got to do, and I just accepted it. And I think, you know, it's really exciting when the kids are learning how to speak. And, like, to me, it was a new goal to speak well again and, and enunciate. And I did feel very satisfied to be able to build that up again. But in the meantime, also, I, before I got MS, I had also done a lot of meditations. I did a lot of type of meditation called Vipassana meditation, which is a meditation in which I learned in India. And it's really about learning how to accept, not react to your physical symptoms. So it's trying to create a frame of mind where you're not craving or having aversion to your physical sensations. And, and I've, I did a lot of meditation retreats, so these 10-day meditation retreats and silence, focusing on that. And using that through my health has helped me tremendously. Like I've avoided painkillers and morphine and all the different drugs for pain and 
I kind of just accept the pain as much as I can. You know, I'm not saying I'm doing a great job, but I'm, I'm doing an okay job, I think, and I think the meditation has helped me tremendously to accept what I have and accept the sensation and, and not be depressed because I'm not feeling well or it's hurting or I can't do this or I can't do that. And I'm trying to be positive as much as possible. So I think meditation's helped a lot. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing for me as well. During my, my recent intense little health crisis, I also have had a long history of experience with meditation. And I found that when, particularly the first, well, both nights, I had two sleepless nights in a row where I was just in tremendous pain and also the discomfort of not knowing what was going on, which was freaking me out. And I was wrestling with this, this paradoxical dynamic of being in my body, experiencing all the stuff, and at the same time, just desperately wanting to get out of my body, yeah. <laughs> you know, run away. And of course, I was fully aware that there's no escape. And I'm even reflecting on, like, there's this Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Pema Chodron who has a book titled The Wisdom of No Escape. And while I'm experiencing this, I'm thinking, yeah, there's no escape. This is what's happening right now. I don't know what's happening. I'm stressed. I'm catastrophizing. I'm trying to figure out what's going on, and I don't know. And at this point, it's the middle of the night. Google is giving me all these random things. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, yeah. And it's too late to call anybody. I can't really go anywhere. I could go to the ER, but I don't really know what's going on. And I'm I'm also being kind of stoic in a way, thinking, well, I don't think it's necessarily that bad, or I'm not going to go to the ER. Although the second night, I in the middle of the night, I did pack a bag to go, but I figured I would wait till the morning, because after the first night, I dug out a hot water bottle and and put that on my belly, which is where I was experiencing these extreme cramps, which just turned into one big solid cramp. And in the morning, I actually fell asleep as it gradually subsided. And I felt fine during the day. But then that night, I had another attack. So there was this dynamic. I'm thinking like, wait, you know, I've done meditation where I've sat with pain but this was different. There was the stress of the unknown and uncertainty, thinking, you know, what's happening? And not knowing. And also, I just couldn't get, I couldn't find any respite whatsoever. And I was desperate. I was walking, walking hurt, lying in bed hurt, lying on the floor hurt, sitting hurt, everything hurt. My lower back felt like it was dissolving so that hurt so I found myself leaning on furniture in strange positions just doing anything I could and nothing nothing worked so there was literally no escape and I'm thinking wait a minute I have all this meditation training I should be able to be present with whatever is happening and of course I just felt pretty impotent yeah, when you're saying that, it reminded me of the documentary Fierce Grace with Ram Dass. He, he's died recently, but it, he was a 
meditation teacher, guru kind of person from the 60s, and he was talking about his experience of getting a stroke and being in the emergency room and how, you know, he, in a sense, he had been working all his life to be there, for, be present with that moment for when he might have died or have a serious illness, and and he was trying to do all his meditation, and he was, like, trying to think, like, I'm going to get all these deep thoughts and he said all I could think of was just like he was looking at the, the lights of the, the ambulance and like thinking about the pain and he was like I was supposed to have a spiritual experience but it was really hard yeah and also you have a wife and two children how has this affected your relationship with them and, and how, how have they responded to you when you're going through these crises um, that's, my kids were, were fairly young so I don't talk much about it to them but they see that I take oxygen in the morning. They see that sometimes I can't read them a story because my voice isn't working. But I, I think for the most part, you know, I'm like, I bring them cross-country skiing. I play with them every day. And But like when they saw you crawling on the floor, you know, barely able to function at all, they must have seen that. Yeah, they, um, you know, that's a good, I'm not really sure. The only thing I could say which was unusual is that my, my son, once, who was five at the time, told my wife, he said, if Papa dies, I'll take care of you, Mama. <laughs> it was really sweet, but I was like, that's the only time where I felt like he had maybe some subconscious sense of, you know, seeing that it was challenging. But most of the time, they see me fine in a sense. I mean, I think they just think I'm silly, maybe, because, like, I have a hard time differentiating which toothbrush and differentiating, like, my seven-year-old daughter's clothes versus my wife's clothes so I can't like sort the laundry so they think it's kind of funny or my daughter thinks it's just like I'm silly you know but I I think it was hard for them because like my family went to India and I wasn't able to go for health reasons and I think that was hard for them because they I think they recognize that it's like oh that must be serious but we haven't really talked too much about it to them but um they haven't asked much either. I think they just kind of see it, it is what it is. And Papa walks funny sometimes, can't talk sometimes. But I think they've been okay. I think it's hard for my wife to see me like that. And I'm sure she gets she gets nervous about the future too. But she's been strong and very supportive. And my kids are supportive too in their own way, you know. And in the book, you talk about the importance of communication and expressing clear needs and establishing healthy boundaries and clarifying priorities. How have those factored into into your experience, and, and how have you, you used those to help? Yeah, you know, I think that's something I have to work more at. I mean, I have a hard time asking for help, but I, I do. Like, I think right now, like, sometimes it's hard to put my jacket on, and I ask my people I work with or my family to help me put my jacket on and sometimes I'll have to say no to my kids. I know I can't read your story. I have to lie down right now. I think the biggest impact is honestly that there's a certain type of like superficial friendships where you just kind of joke around and banter in a certain way and I can't keep up with that anymore because I just like I'm not fast enough to keep up with the jokes. <laughs> so it's kind of I don't have as many of those like quote quote party friends anymore. I don't, ha- I don't really have those kind of relationships much anymore so it's kind of narrowed down my friendships and that's been a big change and yeah I don't have as many friends as I used to for sure but uh, I don't have as much time for it either 
Yeah, I've had to be more, yeah, just tell people I can't do certain things. Like, for example, right now we have to wear masks all the time. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me to wear a mask because my oxygen is low off. And anyhow, without a mask, and so I have to tell people, like, I have this problem and I can't wear a mask right now, but I'm, you know, I'm safe and I'm going out in town much or, you know, in stores or restaurants. So you have to just tell people that. But it's, it's been humbling for sure. Mm-hmm. You mentioned suicide earlier. How have you kept going? And have you ever had, you know, thought that what you were going through was, was too much or too difficult, too painful to be worth living with? No, I, personally, no, I never have. And, I mean, I wouldn't even allow myself to think that. I have a family and kids I love. and I wouldn't even allow myself to think that. But even if I allowed myself to think that, no, I, I, I wouldn't. That doesn't enter my consciousness, really. But I know it has for a lot of people. And, you know, when I first got diagnosed, I remember a few people told me, they're like, oh, yeah, my uncle had it. Like, two different people told me about an uncle who had MS who had committed suicide a few weeks after diagnosis. So I know it's there. And fortunately, I, I, don't re- I haven't really suffered from depression from it, but it's still, still very challenging. But I know it's a real thing for people. Like, I know one person who, uh, yeah, he's like, he's quadriplegic, and he has, like, two fingers working and an elbow, and that's about it. And, he, you know, he can't empty bladder or bowel or anything by himself. And he's, he's still hanging in there, you know? He's still, like, grateful to be alive. You know, there, there are some movies out there, too, which talks about it. There's a movie by someone I know. He was a movie producer, and then he got MS, and it was a documentary about his life. It's called When I Can Walk by Jason Da Silva. It's a really good. It shows really how difficult it can be for someone and, and how you try to stay positive and accept it. My guest is Mikael Friedman. He's a naturopathic medical doctor, and his new book is There's No Pill for This. Many of the recommendations that you make in the book for people with MS seem to be really good prescriptions for life in general, like things like diet and exercise and prioritizing one's time and energy, things that people don't really do in our culture. Yeah, I know. My background is is French, and, and French culture, traditionally, it's changing now, but used to have you know nap time and like my mom raised me in a way that like it's normal for you for an adult to have lunch and take an hour nap or half an hour nap and go back to work and you know my parents always prioritized that my father when i was in medical school no matter what i was doing he always asked me when he asked me how my day was he would ask me have you seen any trees today or have you gone for a walk today those were his questions his questions would never was about like you know how much money did you make or what kind of career you have <laughs> he was he was interested that i always went for a walk and saw some trees and so I think rest, our society is so out of balance where we're so focused on doing that. It's crazy. And I think you just kind of have to, like, get out of the herd mentality and recognize that we have to be on a different path and, like, listen to the beat of a different drum. Because our society's drum is, if you listen to the beat, it's, it's like if you play music, it's like the metronome's on too fast. you got to slow it down. 
you know, instead of 120 beats per minute, should be <laughs> life should be more at 80, 80 or you know, a music of 70 beats tempo or something. But like, you know, I've been to Spain and they have siestas and they have two hours off. It's just such a different life. And I've been to South America and Ecuador and been with the Shuar and Cuenca people and the Shuar and traditionally they in Loriente in Ecuador where they live traditionally and in the morning they went fishing and then there would be like rest time for two hours and be in their hammocks laughing sleeping resting and then, and then you go back to like get some fruits and bananas and maybe go to the town and do some work but it was such a different I was like wow <laughs> you're like like your leisure time is so different than what a, you know our culture is here Mm-hmm. And I really think we're moving at a different speed. And it's interesting with MS, like your nerve can't send the signals fast anyhow. So like you can't go at a fast speed. Like I used to, I used to be at a faster speed. And I, you can't. So like when you don't have the myelin sheath, the nerve signal isn't going at a full speed. So I'm slowing down for certain activities. But I'm probably slowing down to what's probably a more appropriate way of living <laughs> than I would or that our society is like, if we keep up with the speed, I think there's so much speed right now that it's a problem in itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are people who feel like they don't have enough speed going, so they, they actually take drugs called speed to yeah. to increase it. So that that's how insane our culture is. Yeah. I think that, if anything, what MS taught me, it was this how to prioritize your energy in your, because if you only have a certain amount of energy, what are you going to do with it? And you're going to waste it on, you know, looking at the phone or whatever it is, like running from thing to thing. So there's this great line in the book, expect nothing and accept everything. I would love for you to talk about that and anything else that MS has taught you about living with adversity and, and dealing with, with life's challenges? Well, like when I'm going back to the, my initial diagnosis, I was so adamant that the doctor was going to be wrong. My neurologist who had treated MS for like 40 years. You know, I had this like undying faith that, you know, my neurologist who's practiced 40 years of MS neurology is wrong when he said, you'll get worse. I was like, who wants to hear that? And I'm not going to get worse. And then I asked him, you know, how can medicine help me? And he said, well, medicine can help you in a lot of ways. It can decrease your progression. And then if you need a physical therapist to help you tie your shoes and, and a speech therapist to help you talk and then a psychologist to help you deal with all these things and, you know, an occupational therapist to help you get dressed. And, you know, that kind of support was not what I was thinking about, you know. When I was like getting diagnosed, I was like, "I'm gonna be good, you know. I'm gonna be doing all the things I want to do." And in a sense, like I think he was right. Like I did end up using an occupational therapist to help me get dressed. I did use a physical therapist to help me tie my shoes. I did use a speech therapist to help me talk. I've had so many different types of therapists, and they've all been helpful. And I needed them, or it was helpful to have them. So I think like my expectation was that naturopathic medicine was going to cure this was, was, I guess, I was humbled by the fact that it didn't. And, you know, regular medicine certainly can't cure MS. And naturopathic medicine doesn't seem like it cured it either. But I've done a lot of things which have helped me a lot, and I think I'm much better at it because of it. And I think it's made me positive because I can, I, I, 
I can do whatever I can do to stay well, and the rest is not up to me. So I think that attitude is very important. So, like, do everything you can to be well without stressing yourself out, and then just accept the rest. You know, like, in, in Indian culture, they say, do your duty, the rest is up to God. So, like, you know, if you're take your medicine, the rest is up to God. And I think that's a way of I've kind of thought about my MS. It's like, you know, I should do what I can, like, yeah, it is humbling to go to speech therapy and practice my vowels, but it helped, and I speak normal now. And so I think accepting what I had is important. And in a sense, the neurologist who just said it bluntly, you'll get worse, but your prognosis is that we'll manage it well. And I think the neurologist who had treated patients for 40 years of MS was right. Like, that's what you can do. You can treat it well, do your best you can, manage it well, and you can still be, you know, I can still be married, have kids, I can still go to work, I can still be mobile, I can walk, I can talk, I can work, you know, I can still, I can do most things most of the time, I can't do all things all the time, but that's okay, and I think accepting it was helpful, and it's such a bizarre thing, because it's like, you get this diagnosis, and you don't know where it's going to affect. Like, it, it can affect so many different parts of your body. And I remember when my neurologist saw my brain and, and the MRI, I didn't even have to tell her any of my symptoms. She looked at the MRI and goes, well, looks like you might not censor your thoughts that well. <laughs> she goes, it looks like your leg collapses. Looks like, looks like sometimes you might have a hard time organizing your thoughts. And it was like an astrology reader who was like 100% accurate. You know, and I was like, yeah, that's true, that's true. And then, oh, yeah, sometimes it is hard to talk. Sometimes it is hard to walk. Well, that's my deck of cards I got dealt with. How am I going to deal with it? Like, you know, it's like I'm going to do the best I can. I can't walk most of the time. I'm going to walk most of the time. So I can, I can't. So I think, like, just accepting what I have has been psychologically more important than having this undying faith that I can cure myself because I think I was looking for the Holy Grail and I never found it, but I did find a lot on the way of trying to be as well as possible, and I am quite well. So I think try everything to be as well as possible and accept whatever comes your way because it, and it's kind of what life is like. And one night I had a dream right before one of my major attacks and I had a dream that like a cougar or like a wild animal came and it was eating me up. And it looked at me, and I just, it looked like that look before, like, you see those videos of the lion putting its teeth inside of the neck of the deer, and the deer just, like, surrenders. And to me, that cougar kind of represents, like, what can happen to you with illness or, or death. Like, and, and eventually the cougar comes for all of us, whether it's an illness or, at some point, death. It takes away a part of us, whether ability to have a body or or whatever it is, or ability to walk, and and we have to accept that there's a cougar, and I think that's what my dream was, and and after that dream, I remember I wrote a note to my family because I was worried that I was going to, something was happening, and I didn't know what my attack would be, but I could feel like it was going to be in my brain, and my cognitive function was changing, and I wrote a letter, and I said, you know, to my family, I said, I love you all. I hope I will remember you in the morning. And I did. But there were still moments where I didn't recognize my son. So I had a pre, like, uh, some understanding of what was coming, of the difficulty coming. I came out of it, thank God. 
but it's you know I think recognizing we have this cougar and dealing with it and leaving it up the rest to God is is part of acceptance. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and how can people get in touch with you if they are dealing with some of these symptoms and and could use some support? Well, you know, my book is one way which kind of goes over all my protocols, and it's called There's No Pill for This. And uh, I'm not taking patients, but I'm happy to help. You know, I, I work full-time. I have a company, a medical association. So my email is michael at restorativemedicine.org, M-I-C-H-A-E-L at restorativemedicine.org. My guest has been Mikhail Friedman. He's a naturopathic doctor. About 12 years ago, he was diagnosed with MS, and his new book that we've been talking about is There is No Pill for This, published by Chelsea Green, which documents his experiences living with and navigating the uncertain world of multiple sclerosis. Mikhail, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. end the show with some poetry from Amanda Gorman, America's Youth Poet Laureate.
today, everyone's eyes are on us as we rise. In this hour, it is our fine duty to find the beauty in rooting for other women so they too know we are not victims. We are victors, the greatest predictors of progress we press for change, a new dawn drawn into the open by a woman whose silence is broken. We push on and act on our responsibility to bring visibility to the most vulnerable, to bring freedom to those who didn't have a choice, to bring volume to those who dare to use their voice. We don't fear the day she steps into the light because we're with women every step of the fight. We clear her way. We don't fear this day because it is her strength, her story, and her spirit which inspires other vital voices to speak up when they hear it. So let it be said that light will be shed when our world is led by leaders ahead of the headlines, the voices on the front line, these first women who stand up, knowing the wind not by where it is, but by where it is blowing, leading the world not by where it is, but where change is going. We all leap forward when one woman tries and she defies with her rallying cries, here lies but does not rest the best of tested women who call us all to rise, speaking our truth in this finest hour, that to their own power every single woman is entitled but it's how our power empowers others that makes women's voices so vital. Hi, I'm Amanda Gorman, and this is my poem, The Miracle of Morning. I thought I'd awaken to a world in mourning, heavy clouds clouding, a society storming, but there's something different on this golden morning, something magical in the sunlight, wide and warming. I see a dad with a stroller taking a jog across the street. A bright-eyed girl chases her dog, a grandma on a porch, fingers her rosaries. She grins as her young neighbor brings her groceries while we might feel small, separate, and all alone. Our people have never been more closely tethered because the question isn't if we can weather this unknown, but how we will weather this unknown together. So on this meaningful morn, we mourn and we mend like lights we can't be broken. Even when we bend as one, we will defeat both despair and disease. We stand with healthcare heroes and all employees with families, libraries, waiters, schools, artists, businesses, restaurants, and hospitals hit hardest. We ignite not in the light, but in lack thereof. For it is in loss that we truly learn to love. In this chaos, we will discover clarity. In suffering, we must find solidarity for it's our grief that gives us our gratitude shows us how to find hope if we ever shall lose it. So ensure that this ache wasn't endured in vain. Do not ignore the pain, give it purpose, use it. Read children's books, dance alone to DJ music. Know that this distance will make our hearts grow fonder from a wave of woes. Our world will emerge stronger. We'll observe how the burdens braved by humankind are also the moments that make 
us humans kinds. Let each dawn find us courageous, brought closer, heeding the lights before the fight is over. When this ends, we'll smile sweetly, finally seeing in testing times, we became the best of beings. In 1863, deep, in the Civil War's magnitude, Abraham Lincoln declared a day of gratitude shared by one heart and one voice of America. A proclamation for a nation in a nightmare this Thanksgiving dared Americans to chime their thanks at a time when many believed they had no thanks to give. Yet is this quirky day now all about turkey, about a plate full of food? Or is it about being grateful in more than just attitude? The Iroquois remind us with one mind to find the words that come before all else because to give thanks is to live it. It's not just in speech, but in each of our daily actions, it's reaching across divisions towards a vision of a long, strong house and table where we're able to gather together. If we dream past pilgrims in the mast of the Mayflower, it may empower us to bravely learn from the people of the first lights, to return to Lincoln's fight to furnish our mites by uniting around any piece of peace, no matter how small. We still hear all of these first teachers called by the will of those still here on this earth, like the Wampanoag who show us the worthiest way to give thanks for our blessings isn't to hog them, but to give them away. It is then full of this feeling that healing can begin because maybe to be American is to be akin to a courageous hope. The trust that even if just for a moment we can, we must close rank as people, one heart, one voice, one mind created equal. Like two vessels meeting at a riverbank anew, under the sky's greeting of a bright blank blue, you'll begin beside the people who flank you. We come to these words before and above all dreams, saying with more love and restored meaning, thank you. We must bestow it like a wick in the poet so it can grow, lit, bringing with it stories to rewrite. The story of a Texas city depleted, but not defeated, a history written that need not be repeated, a nation composed but not completed. There's a poem in this place, a poem in America, a poet in every American who rewrites this nation, who tells a story worthy of being told on this minnow of an earth, to breathe hope into a palimpsest of time, a poet in every American who sees that our poem penned doesn't mean our poems end. There's a place where this poem dwells. It is here, it is now, in the yellow song of dawn's bell, where we write an American lyric we are just beginning to tell.
Batiste to the ground, found an infusionary. Foot map, linguistic scanter. Helpless in the entity. See the cage bird at the bosom of the angry shortfall. One finds a fistful. All engaging. All engaging. Perfections in that non perfection end. I see queen, I see king, I see king, I see queen, well None of you know my kingdom manium Last chance to retract it Last chance to retract it Why?
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.